Welcome to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Interview Archive. We are so glad that you're here. This week, make sure you head to our website to take advantage of the Valentine's Day sale. All of Dr. Jennifer's incredible online courses are 20% off, with additional discounts when you purchase multiple courses. Enjoy today's episode. I am so excited to be here today with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you back. So we've had Jennifer on a couple times, just a little background. She is an accomplished relationship and sexuality educator and coach, a licensed clinical professional counselor. She does have a PhD in counseling psychology, and she teaches sexuality courses and workshops online, as well as maintaining a private practice in Chicago, where you live with your three children, correct? Yes. And husband. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So our last podcast was definitely one of the biggest of the year. So I know there's a demand for this topic. Yeah. So I'm just thrilled yeah. to be back on. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to be here. Okay. So this round, what we decided to do was ask our audience, uh, what questions they have for you. And we threw out some, you know, ideas on social media and received a lot of interesting questions. I actually, you know, couldn't sleep that night because every time a question popped up, I wanted to read yeah. <laughs> what was being asked. It was really intriguing to me to see what types of questions uh, popped up. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to walk through some of these questions with you. So okay. let's just start uh, with one of the first questions. and. Well, actually I I had about two or three questions on, um, sexual dreams Mm -hmm. and most of my personal followers are female. Mm -hmm. And there was one question of, is it common to have sexual dreams about an ex or a random person from high school was the first question. Mm -hmm. And then the second question was, um, is it random? to have orgasms in your sleep without Mm -hmm. a sexual partner involved. Mm -hmm. I thought those were two very interesting questions. So I think, first of all, sexual dreams are very normal. Um, And oftentimes I think we, I think because we can judge ourselves around sexuality, we can quickly judge the dream as if I really want to be having sex with the, the person I knew in high school or my ex or something like that where I think, you know, it's often emblematic or symbolic of something. And if you think through it, you can often think about what it might represent, right? Um, So there are a lot of different meanings. Sometimes if people have dreams about um, someone that they're in connection with, but they have no sexual desire for that person in real life, it's often a meaning of you want to be closer to that person or you're looking for a deeper connection or you are just in a symbolic way through sexuality, either demonstrating a desire for deeper connection or a representation of connection that you have. Hmm. Another possibility, I think, especially around exes or people that you knew in your past, it can be around either you're grieving the loss of that relationship 
or you miss aspects of that relationship. It depends on what the meaning of the dream is. Like if I, if I have a client who's really trying to make sense of a dream, you, you know, it really, you kind of go into it and you can feel as you're walking through the dream sort of what, what things might represent because of the emotional response to them. So, you know, is it a positive dream? Is it a negative dream? Um, sometimes if it's someone in high school, it can represent a time when you felt freer, a time when you felt more attractive, perhaps, you know, that it represents wanting to connect with another part of your life or another part of yourself, which is not necessarily an invalidation of your marriage or your current life, but maybe something that you're trying to connect with or reconcile within your current life or relationship. Interesting. Okay. So we shouldn't be too freaked out about that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sometimes it's, um, oh yeah. Like you said, uh, maybe a connection you had with that person that you don't currently have with your spouse. Do you think Yes. it, it should, you should discuss, you know, um, is it something right. you want to maybe figure about? out what it, right. You might want to first figure out what do I think it does mean? And is it something that I need to address or not? Or is it just, you know, my mind is working out meanings, um, but it doesn't have to be necessarily brought to the conversation. But I think a lot of times when people are younger, they do feel a deeper sense of freedom, right? And sometimes the way we do marriage, we naturally kind of create a little bit of a prison around ourselves in marriage. And, and so sometimes in the context of marriage, we want the security of marriage, but sometimes we make it too secure, too suffocating in the name of security. And so sometimes we need to bring more aliveness or freedom or novelty into the sexual relationship, back into the marriage for it to be a place of play and a place of joy. We're often not very good at doing freedom in a, in a solid and committed way within marriage. So a lot of times we can long for other things that represent it while not integrating it into marriage. And how do you recommend integrating freedom? I think mm -hmm. that's a really interesting concept. Mm -hmm. Like how do you, you know, especially if maybe one spouse needs more freedom or views freedom differently than another one, um, when you yeah. coach, how, yeah. how do you Yeah, well, I think that? human beings have these two fundamental desires that feel like they're in contradiction, which is we want, to belong, we want a sense of security, but we also want to belong to ourselves and to be true to our own path and to our own desires. And that's connected to freedom. Mm -hmm. So there is this fundamental tension that's in all people and in all partnerships. And so the simple way of saying it is you don't want your belonging needs or your security needs to snuff out a sense of freedom and authenticity, but you also don't want authenticity or freedom to undermine security and safety. So you, it, the people that do it well find a way to handle that tension. They don't do so much autonomy that it undermines the basic commitment of the marriage, but you also don't do commitment in a way that people can't have friendships outside of the marriage or can't pursue their dreams or do things that matter to them. And so the happiest marriages are, are handling that tension well. They don't want to undermine the marriage, but they don't want either person to feel like they can't belong to important parts of themselves. Mm -hmm. 
And it's also that sometimes one person in the marriage represents freedom more and the other one represents security more. So, you know, it's just working within that to make, to value both things and to tolerate the discomfort often in making room for both things. A lot of times we weigh marriage down and family life down with shoulds. I should do this for the kids. I should serve others. I should, 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 but there's no room for play. And so creating more space for play and romance and in an adult partnership is something we're usually not very good at. Hmm. So how do we, outside of the duties of life, put a circle around the two of us where we can be grownups that can play together mm -hmm. and can try new things, go dancing, go do things that are just about the two of us that are about mm -hmm. a kind of romance between us. That's often the first thing to go. And it's a big price that couples pay often unwittingly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So do you recommend like scheduling play? I know that sounds crazy, but I think that's what I end up having to do is yeah, I think you know, for sure night or quarterly trips without the kids. Or, yeah, absolutely. Because especially, kind of yeah, especially if you're invested parents and the needs of the kids are kind of always present, waiting for it to feel like an opportune time is, is often means you're going to wait for a very, very long time. And if you're just good at it as a couple and you both value it already very much, you may well not need to schedule it. But I just think it's a part of anything where you're actually making time for that freedom is a really mm -hmm. good part of, uh, is a really essential thing to do. It's just a way of making your partnership matter and have a yeah. space in your life. Yeah, I've found that like planning a trip or planning an adventure or a date night. I even enjoy the anticipation as much as the event. I was thinking about that. And as soon as the trip ends, of course, I loved the trip, but I almost uh, want to start planning the next thing. So my mind has something to look forward to. And then I get excited about the whole upcoming experience. So I do think it's important to absolutely like kind of schedule it because then it's yeah. just not you know, now what it's like, oh, I already have the next thing in mind and this is going to be so fun. And this is how it's going to make it amazing. And this Absolutely. is where we're going Exactly. So. And it's not the scheduling. It's how one relates to the scheduling. So that is to say, if you think, oh, we have Friday night is date night. Well, if you think of it like, oh, great. You know, I got to <laughs> go have sex Friday. What a drag, you know, if you, <laughs> that that's not going to do well for you, but if it's like, okay, well, how can we make date night really fun? And what do I want to wear? And how can we make this enjoyable and playful for us? You know, that, so, and this, it's like exactly building the play and the fun and the pleasure into your life is the only yeah. way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's work. It sounds, it sounds, I don't know, I guess counterintuitive, but I think play is intentional. It's like, you just exactly. can't have a romantic amazing relationship by default it's intentional it's exactly. intentional play intentional compliments you know intentionally taking time kind of being self-aware of when it's you know you're overworked or the spouse is overworked it really just takes a lot of I have to keep this passion alive right. and I even think of it similar to I've had this thought entrepreneurship where you know, the second I lose my passion for this business or my drive or my work ethic or whatever it is to, to keep it going is when it dies. 
That's right. And I don't know why people don't think of marriage that way. It's yeah. like, it's kind of an entrepreneurial journey. And it you is. have to, you have to work, you have to create it. You have to figure it out. You have That's to try right. new things. And if you let it, if you stop working and you just think, oh, this will run on its own. That's you know, right that's when it tends to, to die, to wither. Yeah. It becomes yeah. no longer alive. And yeah. It's, yeah. it's the aliveness that people want. They want to feel yeah. their marriage is alive and yes. has that Eros energy in it. Sex being one expression of it, but a mm-hmm. kind of a romance is the same Eros energy. It's connected to a sense of spark and aliveness in the mm-hmm. context of obligation. And I think that's so connected to how we live our lives well. I definitely came from a family ethic of strong, a strong work ethic. Mm-hmm. And my, my liability is I can get too involved in work and not make enough time for true play and true freedom yeah. with sort yeah. of the fantasy like, oh, work, 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 then you play kind of like someday, then you're going to yeah. have all this fun. And I, I, know. Realized, <laughs> I realized one day, like, no, I have to have the play be integrated into my life. It's not yeah. like one day where I finally relax, you know? <laughs> I know. And so, so yeah, yeah. And so it's a, the good life in allows you to have those real moments of joy, play, freedom in the context of responsibility and work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the next question uh, we, we got this about three times, which I thought was interesting, but what is considered a normal or appropriate amount of sex per week or per month? And obviously that frequency is different depending on how long you've been married or, you know, just different, different aspects of that. But what, what do you see? What do you suggest? Um, what yeah. is common? Well, I think the research suggests that once a week is is pretty typical for established marriages, if people care about kind of what is typical. But that's because there are some people that are in sexless marriages that are in the being measured against people that are having sex maybe five times a week. So that is to say, or or seven times a week or more. So there is a big range in terms of how much people have sex. And I think there, I also read some research that was that actually the happiest married couples were having sex once, one to two times a week, not three or more, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So again, though, what I think is the right amount for any couple is the amount that both people are happy with which sounds for some people like, well, that's impossible because my number would be 15 and my spouse's number would be one or zero or something like that. And so, um, but the thing is in any good marriage, it's really coming to handling how you're different enough within yourself to be able to create something shared and something you can both be happy enough with. And that that is a there is a fundamental tension in that, a fundamental um, yielding and standing up for that are happening together until you can find something you can both be at peace with. And that's the right number. Sometimes there's just one person that's happy. That's the problem. And the other one is not. And that's really the wrong number, whatever that is. Yes. And how do you navigate those conversations? Um, A question I got was, I know from one of my girlfriends, but she's the, usually the instigator in the relationship and she feels weird about it. We've had conversations about it. 
you know, I just thought the guys were always the horny ones that just wanted to do it all the time. And that in our relationship, it's opposite. It's me initiating and then feeling rejected and then confused about, well, I thought dudes wanted this all the time. And then, you know, having her conversations with brothers were like, oh, you're so lucky or he's so lucky. He doesn't yeah. even know what he has with a woman that wants, because mm-hmm. it's typically the other way, mm-hmm. you know, have suggestions on. Well, um, first of all, it's a lot more common than people realize because we have this cultural narrative that men are the ones that like sex and women tolerate it. When it's the opposite in a marriage, um, then people feel like, well, there's something wrong with us. So they don't talk about it. They don't complain about it to their girlfriends or their guy friends usually because they feel like it's exposing something weird about them. So it is way more common uh, than people realize. The second thing I would say is that desire differences often emerge out of a dynamic. So that is to say that when their spouse doesn't want it, it makes them want it more. So it's like, yeah, like, why don't you want me? Right. What is the, we're back to the hard to get game. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you're like pursuing it because you're trying to figure out why don't you want me? Yeah. That's driving a lot of the desire, not just a core desire for sex. So then do you just stop? Do you just stop dating? I wouldn't say that the answer comes in not initiating. I think that the answer lies more in how you're handling yourself, meaning what what happens that drives these into extremes is when you allow your spouse's lower desire to mean that you are not worthy. And the more one feels that way, the more desperate they get to get their spouse to give them the feeling that they're enough. And so the more they're going to their partner to answer the question, the more entrenched the dynamic gets because the lower desire person feels like they have to manage and handle their spouse's sense of self. And that is not desirable. That's not sexy. That's not connected to play. That's connected to work. Yeah. So so (laughs) it matters how much, strangely perhaps, the couples that actually do much better, it's not that there's no differences in desire, it's that they just don't take them so personally. They don't mm-hmm. get too worked up and reactive and upset. And mm-hmm. um, they also aren't entrenched. Like a low desire person can be maybe just lower desire than their spouse, or they can hate the intimacy of sex. They don't want to be in the intimacy of marriage. They don't, And so they may have an extreme position that pushes their partner's extreme position as well, because there is no sex or there is no sexual validation. So the the healthier people are, even if they have differences, the less entrenched those positions get, the less extreme they are. Mm -hmm. So, So to the person who's in the higher desire position, the thing I would always recommend against is making your spouse pay for their lower desire or making your spouse responsible for managing your sense of self. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean hiding the difference or hiding the disappointment. It means being willing to talk honestly about it and to say who you are and to say what you want. And to do that without being condescending or mean or punishing can be really hard for people because it means being intimate without the guarantee of validation or approval. So 
I'm going to go here. Mm -hmm. So here I go. I'm just going for it. Um, mm -hmm. We got a question. There is a girl or who has been in a relationship for six years and has never had an orgasm mm -hmm. and it stresses her out. Yeah. Um, what I guess the question is, is it normal to have not had an orgasm in six years of marriage? Is there anything I can do? Well, unfortunately it's pretty normal. Um, in that a lot of times women don't orgasm as readily as men do. And there's, there's a lot of different reasons for it, but one of the reasons is men are much more likely men orgasm more easily, and they're more likely to yeah. figure it out before they ever get married because their sexual organs are external and easier right. to and easier. It's just not that difficult. Exactly. <laughs> perfect fire hose in the bathtub when you're three, you know, it's like, you, you just, okay. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so, so not hard where girls sexual organs are more internal. There's also less in the cultural narrative about women's sexual arousal and desire. So it's very yeah. easy to not even identify with it or be aware of it as a female. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so, and then a lot of people growing up in religious paradigms that feel like desire is connected to selfishness, sexual desire in a woman is connected to a, her not being righteous or good or desirable. There's a lot of pressure to not be sexual. And then yeah. what happens for a lot of women then is that they get married, especially if they're in a religious frame of I'm going to, my spouse, my husband is going to awaken my sexuality, help me right. to be sexual. And a right. lot of times this is a guy that doesn't know how to do that. But also the other thing is that even if he's perfectly skilled, okay, if you don't know your own capacity for arousal and orgasm, it's, you don't know how to do that in the context of marriage. So a lot of times then people feel a lot of women feel a lot of performance pressure and that performance pressure actually puts a downward pressure on orgasm. That is to say, maybe an easier way of saying it is the higher your anxiety or your doubt or your fear, the less likely you are to orgasm because mm -hmm. it's very connected to play and freedom. Yeah. The other thing is that a lot of times going back to some of these ideas around security and, and freedom, a lot of women that I work with don't know how to play in their lives. They're very much in the self-sacrificing service oriented reality of life that they're kind of sacrificing their desires and their sense of self to their families to their marriage so they may have sex out of duty managing their husband's needs quote unquote but that's precisely the psychological frame that's connected to entrapment and works against orgasm mm -hmm. So what I would say to somebody who's never orgasmed is you want to look at your sense of freedom in your life and in your marriage, because that's the most important piece to address. How free do I feel in my life? How free do I feel in the marriage? How free do I feel within myself, within my own skin, within my own body? Um, you know, I've worked with people where they just realize they've constructed this whole reality in which they they're, they're disappearing, they're suffocating themselves because that's how they learn to be a woman. And so their sense of learning to orgasm and be sexual is to start wearing sexier clothing, to start going and pursuing things that matter to them, 
to start like belonging to their own lives and their own sense of self and their own femininity and their own ability to be a woman and a strong woman, that becomes the most important work. And then an orgasm and their sexual aliveness comes along with it. Hmm. So, you know, there's certainly techniques on how to orgasm and I won't get, you know, I talk about all that in my art of desire course, there's things yeah. to do to learn to orgasm, but the psychological piece is very, very important. And I spend yeah. more time on that in my course than even the physical piece. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we should promote your course. Um, yeah. I like, as I'm reading these questions and even listening to some of my friends and conversations, some of them literally don't even know how. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so no, exactly. I feel like there's well, also- how should they know? Like they don't have, you know, know, nobody teaches- I mean, right. I remember right, right after I got married, my friend who was single and I got married at 29 and she was similar age and she didn't know that women have a clitoris. She didn't right. know that women could orgasm and, and, you know, and she was, she was a very educated person, but where was she going to learn those things? Because it right. was forbidden to learn it. So yeah, in, in the course that I do called the art of desire, I'm helping women in their self and sexual development. So I'm helping women to really look at their relationship to themselves, to their desires, to their ability to live honestly and authentically within themselves, because for so many women, they've learned to shut that down. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. I, I also teach women about female sexuality, which is really amazing. But yeah. when we're looking at ourselves and comparing it to men's sexuality, we can look like we're deficient because men's sexual patterns are different than women's, but women have at least as much sexual capacity, mm-hmm. if not more than men's, yep. but it operates in a different way. And so helping women to understand their sexuality, but also quite literally their clitoris, their arousal yep. patterns and how to orgasm. I teach women as yeah. well. Yeah. I think men should also take that course. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Go learn, go study. Um, okay. Well, that was a good answer. Thank you. And I would love to attach the, your, um, information to the podcast sure. and sure. make sure we have those links. Cause I do think it's such a good resource, especially in our community. And when you grow up in a religious community in a more conservative community, I just, I honestly feel like there just needs to be more education and, Absolutely. you know, the more, especially when I read all of these questions and they come piling in, I'm like, we just have this need here. Yes. That's right. Um, okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, hormonal changes between Mm -hmm. women and men. Mm -hmm. Um, there are quite a bit of childbearing women in Utah, and Mm -hmm. I got quite a few questions on how to maintain a healthy, uh, sexual relationship with your partner while after you're have had a baby and when you're nursing and I felt this, it is really hard. I mean, mentally you go from pregnancy, you know, all of these hormones and, you know, your hair grows like crazy, your nail grows and you're, and yeah. then you have the baby and you get this, this drop and then the hair is falling out. The yeah. milk is coming. In. You, you actually feel like my mind. I, 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 re, I just remember thinking, wow, it's real. Like this crash in hormones is real. And that's where the postpartum comes in. It's a real physical thing that happens. And I remember having to just talk myself every day, like this is normal. You know, these hormones are normal, but the last thing you want to do after feeding a baby and having 
this hormone right. shift in hormones off sex. Right. And that's a real thing. So for right. a lot of people, how do you right. suggest handling that? Well, there's so I would say what you were doing around normalizing is is really good, I think, because it just helps you understand better what's happening rather than feeling like I'm broken. What's the matter with me? What's the matter with us? So first of all, one thing is that some women feel those hormonal shifts a lot more than others. So there are hormonal shifts that are happening at postpartum. There's hormonal shifts that happen in menopause. There's hormonal shifts that happen in when you're cycling, when you're having a period. And a lot of women feel that quite acutely. Like they actually yeah. feel more arousal and desire right before they ovulate because yeah. the progesterone levels are going up and the yeah. estrogen levels yeah. are increasing. So they, they, they actually feel it. Some women are not as sensitive to those shifts. Yeah. And so some women might be like, I can't even tell, I don't even know the difference. And I, you yeah. know, so, but, but so some are having it more than others. And there's research that shows like the more those hormonal levels plummet, the more, um, likely the woman is to suffer from postpartum depression, for example. So there's definitely that piece and the, the, the hormonal and biological reality is the foundation from which you can be sexual and be psychologically healthy. So it matters what's happening in your body. But what is also very powerful are the meanings that you're attributing to your physical state, to your sexuality, to the shifts in hormone. Uh, hormones, the meanings you're attributing to having a baby, the meanings you're attributing to being a mother, you know, those meanings are also very much impacting your body and how touch feels and how you feel about sex and how you feel about yourself. So the, the imperfect answer, because it's not precise enough, but I think is, is to say that those hormonal shifts are real, right? And for some, they're more um, challenging than for others because some are feeling them more and living in the effects of them more than other women are. But that they aren't deterministic either. It's too simple to say, you know, I can't have sexual desire because I'm menopausal. That's also too simple because the body is also responding to the meaning. So while it's a reality, you can also be thinking about, you know, how am I thinking about myself as a sexual being? How am I thinking about the fact that my body is fluctuating right now? Because the more compassionate you are to yourself and the more that the marriage can make room for this time in this period where, the, where a woman is adjusting to becoming a mother of a new child, to nursing, to all the demands on her body, like the more likely it is for that to not be a negative event that her body is in shift that the yeah. marriage can handle it, that her yes. desire for her husband goes back up soon after because he's a good guy who's invested in her, right? What mm -hmm. often happens is if couples, I'm broken, what's the matter with me? I, my life doesn't belong to me. I'm failing my husband. I'm failing my child. Y you know, those meanings are going to make sexual desire go down even more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, like in yeah. my courses, I'm often talking about mm -hmm the meanings and watching the meanings and how we're responding to these physical shifts, how we're handling ourselves, the differences in our marriages, mm -hmm. because they have high impact on our psyches and high impact on our happiness in the marriage, but also very high impact on desire. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, I do think self-awareness and just not attaching I'm a failure. This will last yes. forever. I think that's exactly. so true. You have exactly. to frame it. 
yeah, this is hard and this is normal. And then maybe communicating that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I remember saying to my husband, honestly, like, I'm sorry. Like, this is yes. really messy, but I don't intend, you know, you know, that the nursing yes. will stop and, you know, you know, after you're just going to get out of it. I just kept saying, this is going to end. Like, I, yeah. there's no way this can go on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so I hit menopause a couple of years ago and, or I started to become obviously perimenopausal and, um, and I think that was so connected to loss for me that I started to panic about it because I was like, oh my gosh, is my desire going to go down and I'm becoming old and everything, you know, every, everything's ending. Yeah. (laughs) I was getting a little bit over. It's over. It's all over. (laughs) It's all over. And I think my emotional reaction to it was making my desire plummet because I was kind of in an excessive sense of loss. Mm -hmm. And so then my, and then my fear was making that like become self-fulfilling. So I remember saying to my husband, something like, oh my gosh, like, what if this is all over? What, what if I never feel desire again? What if, and just kind of communicating it. And I remember him saying like, we're going to be okay because I love you and you love me and we will weather this together and it's going to be okay. And just that being of like, we're still a couple, we still love each other. We're going to get through anything. Well, guess what? My desire was back. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. like the meaning. Turned you on. Yeah. And, and I don't mean to say that, like, you know, that, yeah. it, you know, I do have to work a little harder now that my body's not doing as much for me. But the, the meaning is really important mm-hmm. for how the body responds. Yeah. And so, yeah, that compassion that. for those stages we go through is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That's a great answer. Um, Okay. I had a girl who asked, who said, um, it was hard for her not to have sex without watching a sexy movie or reading a romance novel mm-hmm. or doing something that put her in a frame of mind. Is that normal? Yes. And, um, is that something that you recommend if desire is low? It's just something I was yeah. thinking about because I was like, well, actually, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is normal, first of all, because, you know, sex is kind of a place that you go. Um, yeah, it's a place of play. And going into the realm of the erotic is, you know, the couples who do it well, they just know how to walk there together. They know how to get themselves there. But it is very different from, I got to get the laundry done. What do we need to get in the kids' lunches tomorrow? I mean, that's just like a whole different way of yeah. thinking. Is Costco going to reopen? Do yeah. you have to wear a mask? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Stuff like that isn't that sexy. And so, and mm-hmm. so kind of, and then especially if you feel like I shouldn't be thinking those things or those are somehow less virtuous, you know, how, how do I get myself there? So now the the whole world of pornography and erotic images is a complicated world. And one that certainly people can say, I don't want to have anything to do with that world because it's an unethical reality and so on, uh, which is completely um, a legitimate position, which is a little different than whether or not you can do things that facilitate your movement towards the erotic. So Mm -hmm. you can read erotic stories, you can look at drawings, you can look at erotic art, you can look at, um, you can create your own um, imagery as a couple, right? You can do a lot of things that pull for this movement into the weirdness of eroticism. 
mm-hmm. but it does facilitate your body going there. Yeah. So there's ways to do that that are to distract from the marriage, that are to get away from your partnership, but there's ways to do it that actually create more depth in your partnership and create more, you know, pleasure and joy together. Like one couple I worked with where he would, she was, um, just very immersed in the realm of parenting, had a demanding job. It was very hard for her to move into that erotic world when the young kids were kind of always in her head. And it was easier for him, but she felt sort of guilty about the fact that she liked the erotic stories, that she liked these, she felt like it made her a bad person. Mm -hmm. So he's like, well, you don't have to choose it. I, I'm choosing it and you have to listen and I'm going to read you a bedtime you story. You have to read one erotic book per week. <laughs> and so he would read her the bedtime story that would be a sexual story. And so it was really perfect oh because God. it like gave her permission so to just good. like receive it in a sense and it would help her to get there, but it really made them get closer together. Yeah. And so he, she I like it. I don't really know grateful. that would buy that. Yeah. Let yeah. me read you an erotic close your eyes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it just was a really, it was a way for them to come together more and for her to more readily move into that realm. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just, and it comes back to even more of that conservative upbringing, that religious upbringing. Like so, so many people think twice about, well, yeah, I'm going to read a book. It's going to put me in the mood. This is why they're here. This is the purpose. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think, right. um, I think a lot of times we have the, the false idea that having sexual thoughts is not righteous. It's not good. And yeah. that's right. the right idea. The idea is what are we doing with our sexuality and is it creating something good in our lives or is it right. destructive? Totally. So you can, you yeah. could relate to the erotic world in a way that's destructive, that you're stepping away from your marriage, that you're being indulgent, that you're getting away from your life that's all bad. Okay. But it's right. not the fact that it's sexual. It's the way one is being sexual versus mm-hmm. am I stepping using the sexual world to step more deeply into my marriage to create yeah. something playful Connection. and joyful and connected yes. with my spouse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. We need to put that on speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that's a good point. Um, okay. What do we know about men's hormone shifts? We talk a lot about females, menopause. It's such an easy sign that the hormones are going down. You know, it's so obvious. Every single woman goes through it, but men don't get, you know, as much time. And I remember like, um, after one of our podcasts last year, I was like, no, Jennifer said, we need to write down all of our ideas on this paper. And, you know, we can be more adventurous and this is, and then he, like, he said to me, he's like, I'm 40. And then my heart, I'm like, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, and I kind of like my heart, like started to pound. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, um, yeah. so do they have a shift the same as women? And is it yeah. as normal is, I mean, you see 50 year old men having kids all the time in celebrities. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Women. Yeah you know, um, yeah. the biggest thing that I know about men's sexuality in terms of hormonal shifts, I don't have that, uh, easily accessible to my mind in terms of how men's hormones shift, but what, 
does definitely happen is that men struggle more with erectile dysfunction um, as a function of aging. So mm -hmm. that is to say, the, the research is that, you know, 30% of men in their 30s start to have some ED, erectile dysfunction. 40% of men in their 40s tend to have some, and it goes stepwise up, right? 80% of men in their 80s, apparently. And the, but also what happens is the erectile dysfunction becomes more problematic. So you might have it every once in a while in your 40s where your body's just not doing what you want. But as you get older, because it has a lot to do with uh, cardiovascular health and blood flow that, you know, and because your arteries get more constricted as you age, because that, you know, th then it's going to affect yeah. um, your erectile functioning. Yeah. And that can be um, hard on men, so to speak. <laughs> that can be difficult for men because they, because if they have their sense, <laughs> exactly, if their sense of self is connected to sexual performance, which for a lot of men it is, right? Yeah. That they need to be reliable. That they can't ever kind of expose that their body doesn't do what they want. Like women can sort of are more accustomed to that idea that yeah, their body so may disappoint true. them. But yeah. for a lot of men, that feels like a challenge to their masculinity. And so a lot of men in their 60s are the ones who stop having sex because they don't like the intimacy and the exposure mm. of their body disappointing them. I see. So, um, but again, in terms of hormonal shifts, I don't have that in my head to be able to relay it currently. Yeah. But I, I know that there are shifts. I think they are less punctuated than they are for women. I agree. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, final question, because this is the Glow Boss podcast, mm -hmm. we always end with asking our guests to tell us about a recent glow up that they've had. What would you say yours what, was? What is that? I'm sorry that I don't glow know. What up. That it's like um, something that you learned, an inspiring, um, a, an inspiring moment, maybe a journey that you took, um, a goal that you reached, um, even something positive that happened within your family. Um, mm -hmm. just something, something that stands out as maybe you came out of 2021 thinking, Oh, I became better. Or I learned this or. Gosh. So, um, I, let me just say what's at the top of my head and, um, yeah. cause I, this is on the spot for me, but maybe maybe two things that I think are standing out to me at the beginning of 2022. Um, one is that I think one of my strengths, but also my liability is that I'm, I'm fairly sensitive to other people's feelings. And that's the strength because I can track and map people readily, but it can also yeah. be a liability because if someone's upset with me or angry or whatever, it, it's pretty disruptive for me. Uh -huh. And I, I like want to be tougher while still being more sensitive. So I think just an idea that's become more true for me. And I think I've gotten stronger at it, although I, I clearly have to keep working at it. It's something I talk about all the time. It's easier to talk about it on a podcast than to truly fully live it. But I think, you know, just this idea that it's not anyone's job to like me, love me, or respect me. That's my job. Mm -hmm. Meaning, I. It, it, this is something I teach all the time, but I guess I just can feel that I'm living it at a, a little bit better level, which is just this ability to handle within myself 
that that I am genuinely and honestly at peace with myself. And that's all I have control over. And that's all I ever will have control over is, yeah. is being at peace with myself. Um, I think sometimes, you know, getting to be more known is it's flattering to have people know who I am, but it's also anxiety evoking a bit because as I imagine you may know as well, there is this kind of inflation and you still continue to be a human being and you still continue I don't know why it, it can it can sort of drive more of a kind of awareness of of an expectation without really being known, and I think that's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure that I like it all that much, actually. And so, yeah. and so I think it drives for me the the home the point that I never will be able to control that. I can only control yeah. who I am, and I think that's been something I've been getting clearer about. Um, Although I know I still have to keep growing on that front. So I don't know if that makes sense. It's just, yeah, no, I love that. About. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I'm probably similar to you where it's easy to feel and read the emotions of others and maybe put yourself in their shoes so quickly. Yeah. And yeah. I actually think that's what makes the best coaches and the yes. best. right. Like, you need that sensitivity. Right. Yeah, yeah. You need to be able to map it really. Yep quickly, yeah. but also mapping a lot can also be a little bombarding. It can be a little bit uh -huh. a dysregulating. Yeah. And so knowing yeah. how to sort of handle what you map while still handling your own sense of self is another yeah. muscle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My friends and my husband will even say like, take your own advice. <laughs> yeah, <it's so> true. <laughs> Sometimes the best coaches, yeah. you know, my husband said this to me, like the, the best coaches are usually the one who are exceptionally good at coaching other, their other people, but it's hard to do it to yourself, yeah. Yeah. you know, where it's like, wow, if I would just record my speech, that I just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but that's a real right. thing. Like some of the very best therapists and coaches and and oftentimes, um, it's much harder to do within, but so easy to see in others that you can absolutely, absolutely help yeah. everyone else. So that's right. good. Like we're everyone, we're all in this developmental process, you know, yeah. no, no one's outside of it. And so it's, it's yep. always a process of growing and staying clear about what you have control over and what you don't. And yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge for all of us. So, yeah, well, you're, I think you're doing great. And I would say, don't stop. <laughs> Thank you. I think you're needed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe intimidating. And of course people aren't going to know the real you or put up a perception around who you are, but I know you're doing great things and it's exciting to see that growth and that's influence for the good. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on. I always, Joe, I always think I could talk for like two more hours. I just think it's such an important topic, especially in Utah, especially yeah. when you're surrounded by really conservative, naive, I would say. Yeah. Friend. Um, and gosh, I sometimes wish I could get males to listen a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I know. When you come from a conservative family, when you marry into a conservative family, and then when you find out underground about all of these issues. And I just wish there was more education in general. Yeah. Yes. I just think it's unfair. <laughs> right. A lot of people suffer and yeah. without knowing that there are ways to make sense of it. And, yeah, they, and that they should they have a right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, do you want to, um, shout out your website where they can buy, sure. you know, sure. those courses where to find them? 
Sure. So my website is finlaysonfife.com. So just my name, F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N hyphen F-I-F-E.com. And on my website, you can find um, my podcast archive, which has lots of interviews that I've done on sexuality, spirituality. Um, also my online courses that I have um, primarily for an LDS audience, but it's really, they're just teaching good principles of living um, on how to develop yourself personally and sexually to be more capable of solid, loving, intimate relationships. Awesome. So the courses are there. And then I just started my own podcast um, in September. It's a podcast called Room for Two. Oh, yay. Yeah. And where I'm doing interviews of couples. So couples oh. are bringing the typical challenges they have around intimacy, communication, jealousy, conflict in-laws, you know, they're bringing those issues and then they're anonymous, but I'm talking, I'm giving, I'm applying the principles you hear me talk about in the courses and on my other podcast to real life situations. And oh, so, I love that. Yeah. So will, it's been well received. And so anyway, you can find more information about it on my website as well. Room for two. Okay. So yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now you, you had me at anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That works really well for me. That kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again for coming on. I so appreciate you. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we ask that you please rate and review the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from this information. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, follow the links in the show notes below. For more information about her online courses, live events, and her free Facebook group.